Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dishing with Stephanie's Dish, the podcast where we talk to people in the food space. Sometimes they write cookbooks. Sometimes they write a lot of cookbooks like Beth Dooley. Beth, I thought of you this weekend because I was at a book signing with my husband at Paragus Outfitters in Ely. And we were, yeah, we were looking at the cookbook section with the gal that is the book buyer and perennial plate was on the shelf as was the Northland kitchen. And you like had almost your whole section to yourself of just books. You've written so many. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. I intend to take over the whole bookstore. (laughs) Yes. I mean, you are like prolific because how many cookbooks have you written now? Is it like 11? Around, well, not just my own, but I write cookbooks with other people. So around 13. Okay. And the latest cookbook that you wrote is with Will Steger. Yes. And so that book is the Steger Homestead Kitchen and it's with Will Steger and his niece, I believe. That's right. Yes. She's wonderful. Rita May. Okay. She's adorable young she's got great energy and she's half chinese she grew up um going sort of living in between the u.s and and sorry half vietnamese she grew up living in between um vietnam and um california her her dad is her dad was in vietnam met and married a woman fell in love with her um her name is her mom's name is kim chi and um, they live in California, which is where Rita Mae grew up. But she goes back every year to visit her relatives. And she speaks uh, Vietnamese fluently. And her food is wonderful because it's very rustic and it's very simple. But it's, you know, boldly seasoned and, um, and just really generous. She's, she's lovely. So, yeah, that's, that, those are the recipes in the book. And then the stories in that book really come from Will, who experienced so much incredible hospitality when he's out on his adventures. He often ends up, you know, going through these Inuit villages and um, meeting with people of all different stripes. And they always share with him everything that they have and insist that he takes the best of everything. And that those are kind of the values that he brought back to the Steger Center. He wants to provide that kind of hospitality. So that's how that book came together. And of course, he's also about climate change. So he's very conscious of making sure that the um, the recipes and the foods, food that he serves, you know, leave a really light footprint. So that's, that's sort of what that book is about. So how does that differ? So you collaborated on that book. So what did you literally do on that book that would be different from like your own book, Perennial Plate? It's a great question. I'm more of the writer. So I try and, you know, I spent hours and hours with Will, which is so much fun talking with him, just hanging out with him. Yeah, getting he's a his great story. storyteller. Yeah, he is. And so his stories of, you know, these incredible um, adventures that he's been on, as well as his stories growing up, you know, he came from a huge family, there were nine kids in his family. And his mother was a fabulous cook, but a really good sort of farm cook, she grew up on a farm. So he talked about those experiences of gathering everybody with his whole family, you know, every single night, and God forbid, if you were late for dinner, and all you know, 12 or 13 of them would be sitting promptly at six o'clock. And then his responsibility to clean up. And, and then because he had relatives that lived on farms, he was often working on a farm in the summer. So, you know, again, he had those incredible experiences of growing up around really good local food. And then, you know, being called to dinner with these big, you know, with a big extended family. Um, 
his falling in love with the wilderness and his falling in love with being outside and um, his first garden, you know, his, um, he asked his mother if he could have a piece of her garden. She had a huge vegetable garden. And so she roped off a little piece for him and he would sleep outside so he could hear the plants growing. I mean, they're just some wonderful stories that I oh, thought were funny. It has yeah, to be I'll... kind of intimidating to listen or have a conversation with Will Steger. I'm imagining you record things and then mm-hmm. trying to create that feeling in his words. Was that an intimidating process for you? Cause I think it would be for me. No, he's so generous, you know, oh, and he's nice. so easy to talk to and, and he loves, you know, he loves conversation. He loves being around people. He loves telling those stories. He's a good listener and he tells other people's stories. So you know, I would just kind of, again, follow them around and type them out and then edit them so that they were in story form, you know, because yep. not everybody tells a story with a, a narrative arc. Um, and so, you know, he would then read them and correct me or, um, or you know, I mean, and I've always done that with people. What I like doing is capturing their voice on the page. It's I want it to sound like them. So with Will and the other um, people that I work with, they always read what I've written before I before anything else happens. And um, and then if they say that doesn't sound like me, I'm like, okay, good. Thank you for telling me that. Let's make it sound like you. Yeah. You know, and then go back and forth. And that's the fun of it. But but the real fun for me too is listening for that story. You know, because you can talk to somebody for hours and hours, and you still don't quite have the story. Yeah, exactly. Dig so around and grab that the meat of what it is they're talking about. When I was working on my cookbook, my husband would, cause he's a writer and he would say like, you need a beginning, a middle and an end to all of these little pieces, right? You can't just ramble on. Um, mm-hmm. You are one of the first people locally that got me interested in food and that I admired in food. One of the first farm to table type of people that I ever met. And I met you at a farmer's market and just the aesthetic that you had about how you cooked and the way you wanted to cook. And, you know, you were kind of talking about the environment long before anybody else was and about regenerative agriculture. And has your mission over the years stayed the same and you're just leaning into more of what you've always done or has it changed as we've gotten more plant-based overall? You know, that's a great question. Thank you. And thank you for what you just said. I'm really, really very touched. Thank you. I'm I'm thrilled. Thank you. Well, um, yes. And, you know, the, the answer is yes and no. I mean, I became, you know, it's kind of like you follow those threads through your life. And I became interested in local food really through Lucia Watson, who was kind of the first person to take farm to table really seriously. Right. And really, you know, the other big kind of influence was, um, joining a CSA because I was forced to really respond to what's coming in, you know, in that box. And one of the first things I did after I joined a CSA was to start writing their newsletter, which brought me out to their farm once a week. So I could see what was going on and I could see how people responded to it and I could see what was happening. So that was, those were kind of the, the biggest influences and they remain with me today. But when I began to understand the impact of how food is grown on you know, not only flavor, but our health, and then began to thread, follow the threads around environment. That's when I really became super interested in it, because really, 
the more you understand about agriculture, the easier it is to see that conventional agriculture is probably the biggest contributor to climate change. And then once you begin to understand that, that was not a story I want to tell because that's not really about food, right? So in researching the book collection of essays I wrote in Winter's Kitchen, I happened upon Don Wise, who is an agronomist at the University of Minnesota, and he's the founder of the Forever Grain Initiative. And he's a remarkable man because he had long ago connected with Wes Jackson down at the Land Institute, who understood that if we're going to change how we grow food, we need to really give farmers something else to grow. And to me, that really, that was the light bulb for me in wanting to know about more about that because all of a sudden that lifts the conversation of local food out of, you know, all of the criticism it's gotten for being too expensive or too rarefied or too elitist or, you know, all those kinds of things. When you look at the fact that, monocrops, corn and soy cover almost 98% of our heartland, which is one of the most fertile areas on earth, and that we hold the world's fertility and we're burning it up with these fossil fuels, which are creating wars, you know, then that story becomes much bigger than simply buying local food. And then, you know, as somebody who was super interested in that, I became really interested in what those solutions might be. Because, you know, I'm kind of a Pollyanna, kind of an optimist. I mean, we don't have to grow food this way. We really don't. We've only been doing it, you know, for a generation, you know, a generation and a half, maybe. And if it's taken us just a generation and a half to sort of screw everything up, it shouldn't take us that long to fix it. You know, and so the work that the Forever Green Initiative is doing is to create continuous cover on the land. So it's to interrupt that monocrop system of annual plants that are, you know, that are doing so much damage by washing all the topsoil into the Mississippi River, by, um, you know, killing all of the bees, by, and we know all this, by, you know, poisoning our food, poisoning us, you know, and not really growing food, growing crops to feed cattle, for instance, and growing crops for high fructose corn syrup and growing, you know, for plastics. I mean, it doesn't make sense, right? And so we don't have to grow food that way because the Forever Green Initiative and the Land Institute and these other land grant universities are coming up with a variety of plants that can keep continuous cover on the land that will allow us to change how we grow food, that they will actually capture carbon and drive it back down into the soil. They'll retain the topsoil, actually help build it up. And so there are different methods that we can use that can kind of lift us out of this cycle that we've been in for, you know, 60 years. So that's, that, that's what it Yeah, and you mentioned from, you mentioned that Lucia Watson kind of spurred your love of local food. And you guys worked on a cookbook, uh, Savoring the Seasons of the Heartland, that is a book that I give everybody from Minnesota, just because I think it really speaks to our culture and our community. And also then now Perennial Plate is sort of your last cookbook. And in that, is that where you're kind of taking this regenerative approach and looking, I mean, besides Kernza, are there other grains people are working on? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, The Perennial Kitchen focuses on all these different foods. So, and it, and it really tries to connect cooks and help them have an awareness of the foods that, that provide these ecological services. So yes, Kernza is one of them, 
But Kernza is kind of, in my mind, the poster child for this work because it's easy. We, we all have an affinity for wheat, right? We all love wheat. We all love, and, or we may not love it because of gluten issues, but we all kind of understand that wheat is an iconic American crop. And it actually is the, the largest food crop that's grown around the world. Okay, so as an annual, it's it's pretty destructive. And so Kernza is a perennial wheat that behaves like a grass. It's like our lawns, right? And it comes up every year and you can thresh it and you can cook the whole grain, you can feed it to animals, you can mill it into flour, it's great stuff. But then there are lots of other things that are going on too that I wanted people to know about. One of them is hazelnuts. We have the capacity to grow so many hazelnuts in this area. They're tremendously regenerative. Our plant breeders are breeding them so that they'll be more productive, easier to harvest, a little bit bigger. And they actually taste better than anything that's coming out of Turkey, which are those filberts, which are really big. Right. And, um, you know, and Turkey is such a volatile region. Why are we buying things from Turkey when we can grow them here? And it's also hazelnuts themselves. They're one of the fastest growing plant-based protein on the planet in terms of consumer demand. So we have tremendous opportunity to, you know, to grow more hazelnuts here. We have lots of wonderful berry bushes. We have elderberries, we have currants, we have, and a lot of them are not known to people, but they're delicious. They make wonderful foods. And so, you know, again, those are the kinds of things you can grow in your gardens, but we want more farmers to grow those. You know, the other thing we need are more sunflowers for oil. And you was working on perennializing sunflowers. There's another crop called camelina, which is a cousin of, uh, it's another oil seed and it's it's really wonderful. More antioxidants in it than does um, sunflower oil. And so that would be a wonderful crop. And that again, makes a terrific cover crop. So we're looking for more, more of those crops as well as grains, heritage grains, heritage barley, heritage oat, you know, these heritage rye. I mean, we could be growing a lot more of those grains and some of them are winter hardy. And so those can be planted. They can grow, you know, underground through the winter and be harvested in the spring. So we're looking to get farmers to begin to rotating more of those crops in onto their land. Because again, farmers are businessmen and they are not going to change their practices unless we are realistic and give them something else to grow. And we also pay them to grow a lot of these commodity crops and then not even to use them really. So unless we change some of the way that we distribute the money, the ag Mm -hmm. money, you know, is a hazelnut farmer should get some of that money if he can do something. And maybe it's a slow weaning off of the corporate farm bill, I guess, as it were, because I'm not trying to, I think I'm not trying to demonize farmers because what you said about you know, we want these people to make a living and they need to grow the things that will do that for them. But at the same token, we can give them alternatives. We can try to provide other opportunities and particularly to maybe some of the younger farmers that are just starting out and looking at ways to do things differently. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really important conversation too, I think, because there seems to be this feeling of demonizing the farmer And we really don't want to demonize the farmer, but we want to provide opportunity and to continue to demonize the farmer or to continue to do things the way that farms have always done is not very inviting for young folks to get into farming. It's, it's hard because a lot of these farms are, you know, we have a lot of retiring farmers. We have a lot of farmers that would like to keep 
their farms in production and a lot of young people that are looking for land and a lot of BIPOC folks that are looking for land. And wouldn't it be nice to re-energize our rural communities, repopulate our rural communities that have been decimated by conventional agriculture so that they can bring back libraries and schools and Main Street, and maybe they could have internet highways so that those families don't have to drive their kids to McDonald's in order to do a term paper. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, the solutions seem so obvious, but, you know, it's going to take the willingness of everybody, especially eaters like me and like you that understand this and are willing to begin to, you know, just have conversations around this so we can shift some of the dialogue. What, where are you? Uh, are you working at all at the farmer's market this summer? I am. You're nice to ask. I'm actually working with the American hazelnut people. So I'll be down there. Um, they'll be there. I think every other week I've got a schedule and I'll be um, doing some, you know, cooking demos and stuff like that. I'm just talking to people about how to use the oil. It's fabulous oil. I mean, I, it's, you know, it's like, I think I call it our olive oil because again, it's really high in antioxidants and it's cold pressed and it's got a higher smoke point than does our olive oil. So it's great stuff to work with. And it's got a lovely flavor. I have a good question about that because I have a bottle of that hazelnut oil that I bought, but I don't use it. I kind of assumed that it was sort of like the other nut oils and very specific use, but hearing you talk, maybe I should be using it like olive oil. It sounds like. Use it like olive oil. It's really pretty shelf stable. You don't have to refrigerate it and you know, it comes in a very dark bottle. So you don't have to really worry about having it in sunlight. I keep it actually in the cupboard right next to the stove so that I can just grab it and use it, you know? And so I use it for sautés. I use it for salad dressings. I use it for baking. It's wonderful in baking. In fact, I used a recipe. It's a hazelnut cake. And it's a riff on an olive oil cake. Oh, yeah. And it has orange stuff. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. That Alice Waters hate olive oil cake is like oh, a classic yeah. recipe. Yeah. Yeah. So you can use, you know, just substitute one for one using the hazelnut oil. And it's great. And you get that nice hazelnutty flavor. And if you throw some chopped hazelnuts in it, it's great that way too. And what I like about the um, American hazelnut oil is that those got, those people that are running that are so sort of savvy. Um, they toast the nuts and you can buy the nuts toasted and ready to go. And you know what a pain hazelnuts are to work yeah. with. You have, you have, right? So you don't have to toast them. They're all ready to go. And they've got, again, they've got a more intense hazelnut flavor because they're a little smaller, but then um, they take the seconds that they can't bag and sell and they press them for that oil, right? And then they take what's left and they mill that into flour. So you can get a gluten-free hazelnut flour as well. Oh, nice. All right. I'm going to look for that. Have you been eating out anywhere exciting or are you mostly cooking at home? You know, we're still mostly cooking at home, um, but there are a couple of places I really like. I love um, Heather's. I think her place is great. I think it's 54th in Chicago. You know, Tammy Wong's just opened up Rainbow again, so you can go there and eat. Because Oh, we were I did not on- know that. Hooray. It's great, you know, and she's amazing. She's at the Mill- She's at the um, Lindale Farmer's Market every Saturday, too. So I was down there yesterday. And I was like, brought home lunch. It was so great. <laughs> She has the best pickles. She does. Yes, she does. Her stuff is amazing. So it's been fun to go back there. We were at Terzo the other night and um, there, you know, and it's, it's really cute because one of our sons went to school with um, Charlie Broder and, and so he's, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's really fun to see that family, you know, go and uh, has the Broders at 50th and Penn reopened yet since the fire? 
It hasn't reopened and they don't have anything on their um, on their recording or on their website as to when it does. I know we're all really like chomping at the bit yes. to get it get it open. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then are there any other, as long as I have you, are there any books or cookbooks that have come out or food books that you're excited about recently? You know, um, it's Grist, G-R-I-S-T, and it's by Abra Behrens, B-E-R-E-N-S. She's a chef in Michigan and the UP, and she does beautiful food. She's got a, a restaurant up there and it's Grist, a practical guide to cooking grains, beans, seeds, and legumes. And it's awesome. Oh, I'm liking that. Yeah. Look at it. It yeah. looks hefty too. Yeah. It's really hefty. Yeah. It's, it's a chronicle book. And then, I mean, with everything going on in the world, in, in the world, I got interested in um, what's going on in the Ukraine. And this is not, not a new book, um, but it's beautiful. And it's called Summer Kitchens, Recipes and Remnants. Um, reminences from every corner of Ukraine and it's absolutely beautiful and it's heartbreaking and the recipes are gorgeous I bought and that book too you? Yeah. yeah isn't it lovely and yeah. there's great yeah. stories in there of just what it feels like to be in yeah. that place yeah and it is heartbreaking yeah. because you know that place won't be like that for you know, 25 yeah. to 50 years, it's been decimated. Yeah, it's really, and those kitchens, those summer kitchens are, I mean, they're just so, they're so beautiful. Yeah. 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 I feel, I definitely feel that. Well, Beth, it's been great to talk to you. I will catch up with you. I'll pop by one of the farmer's markets and I'm going to get awesome. some more hazelnut oil. And I'm really going to take that to heart and start cooking more with hazelnut oil. Thanks to you. Awesome. Oh, right. thanks we'll so talk much. Soon, Beth. Okay. Bye-bye. That sounds great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.